let's go ahead and get into our teaching, and that has been prayed for. So turn to Romans chapter 11, and as you're holding that spot, I'll give you some narrative on where we've been. I probably can assure you this is probably the last fig teaching. It is the Figaro of teachings. We have been, uh, I think, operatically moving through this. The motivation behind the idea of the fig, just for those of you that might be new to this, is that it is symbolic, the fig is, of Israel as a nation. And so I leave it at that. You can research it later. As a nation, Israel has been represented by the fig tree and the fruit thereof. Spiritually, Israel is recognized symbolically through the olive tree. Those are on each side of the altar. They're not alive, but they're as close as I could get. And the reason that this is important is because Israel has been recognized in the scriptures as both a national entity that God has endorsed and a spiritual light that they were to be to the world. They haven't done super well on both of those accounts. And that for us is something that we can be encouraged in because of this. On both of those failures, spiritually, nationally, God has not failed them. God is not through with them. Therefore, as we look at the scriptures, one of the things that we can be certain of, if not them, then not us. We've looked at the importance of recognizing that the times that we are living in today are suturing up the wounds of humanity through sin. In other words, sin has had its effect on a world that has been both susceptible to the consequences and seemingly in desperate pursuit of what? Its own way, its own will, carnality. And as a result of that, then the proximity with which the world should desire to have with God is becoming more greatly at a distance. We always know the answer, though. You get far enough away from God, and you get close enough to yourself or others that are in a world system, you will have no peace, and you will suffer greatly. And if you do not have a relationship with God, then ultimately the condemnation of that choice will be upon you. I read for the guys just a quick snippet on Friday morning, which was David Crosby's seemingly legacy last word, turned out to be probably, you know, his epitaph. But it was simply this. Heaven's overrated. Lots of clouds, something like that. And so if you guys are familiar with David Crosby, he had his probably first... Um, contribution and music with, I believe, um, give me a Springfield, not the rifle. Anybody remember the band? The Buffalo Springfield. I think that I'm right. Was that following the birds? 
Okay. So the Buffalo Springfield <laughs> followed the birds. And so he was with the birds in the Buffalo Springfield. And then he was partnered up with Crosby, Stills, Nash, and Young. And the reason that I share that is that he had a legacy of what others would say was an incredible career of delivering harmonies with all of these groups. But his last phrase has to touch your heart because it has to be one of the most pathetic, poetic utterances that a man could utter. Heaven is overrated. Actually, hell is underrated. And the bottom line is, is that I do not have any assurance of where he's at. It certainly was not a great statement to make within then suffering, rightly so, at 81, his demise. But it is reminding us that as we're seeing people ultimately succumb to a variety of the things that the Lord says is going to happen, it is appointed that man shall die. And we are finding that that's true. You know, uh, Lisa Marie Presley, 54 years of age, 81. It's kind of compressing all generations right now. It can be highly discouraging. So the point being made in this fig teaching is that as we look at Israel and the faithfulness of God towards her, and in this climate of political tensions and global warfare and all of the distractions, as we anchor ourselves that with certainty as God is true to that nation, he will be true to you as a believer to the church in particular. We're not going anywhere. Oh, the facilities may change. That possibly is true. But the, the affections and the passions and the protections of the Lord are with us. And so what we do is we anchor ourselves in the word. And part of that is that you are not deceived in these last days where there are calls once again for Israel to be a two-state system, to welcome in all of the other Middle Eastern countries. We have within our own both public school systems and within our Congress what is called an anti-Semite or anti-Semitism that is against Israel, and it's wrong. And nations that do that under the covenant that God established with Abraham do not experience the blessings that nations do that support Israel. The church should not ever be confused about that. And hence in this title, which was intended to be clever but also specific it's simply this when you hear criticisms towards israel god's abandonment of them as a nation and ultimately a spiritual place that jesus himself will govern from you need to put on either your best new york or new jersey voice and say forget about it forget about it fig at about it that's the fig deal. I have something. What I don't know is whether that was New Jersey or New York. Thank you. But just to get you guys, those of you that did not hear the series, it simply goes this. Fig, you're right. Figure right. Second week, watch your figure. Last week, no figment of imagination. This week, 
closing this series, which I do not generally do, forget about it. You must be those who are able to say with confidence, your calculations are wrong. Your mindset is defiled. I can help you understand this biblically. So let's go ahead and turn, as you probably have already, to Romans chapter 11. We'll see where we get beyond that. We're doing pretty good on time. The reason that this is important can be anchored as well. So you're holding your place in chapter 11, but where it can also be anchored very well, very substantially, is what is penned in chapter 3. What advantage then has the Jew, or what is the prophet of circumcision? So we're going to find out what advantage but I will tell you that circumcision, remember, was the first plan of identification that God gave to Abraham. That had never been done before. And that would have been not anything simple to have done. But Abraham, in obedience, was one who both had this performed on himself as well as those who were part of his male tribal system at the time, ultimately, that Israel would be marked for. They didn't understand it. We know later that Paul would identify it's the means by which the heart is dealt with uniquely. And it was established that this would be marked on the males. We know that today that seems to be optional upon delivery. And there's a lot of sympathy regarding that it's brutal but not as much as it would have been back then with the sharp flint. But the Lord was making a statement, I'm setting you apart. I'm going to have you dedicated in a way that the world would not desire to be marked. And with it, I'm going to identify you as my special people group. But notice this. Paul says in verse 2, much in every way, here we go, chiefly because to them were committed the oracles of God. And so with that, I will let you know that the Bible that we hold was committed to the Jews. They are called the oracles of God, the law of God. Within this, God made revelation of himself through a nation that uniquely would be set apart and would inevitably point to him even as they also would be recognized as a nation that would turn away from him. Last week, as we were closing out, we discussed at least three vulnerabilities that to this day are those things which Israel ultimately inherited consequences because of. The one was beginning to accept false doctrine, amendments to the word of God that they had received, little fudgings on the Ten Commandments and other things that God had been giving to them. 
in which they were uniquely set apart as a standard to be light bearers to a dark world. And that's called heresy, when the word that we hold becomes negotiable for what people are to hear. When we decide to say, we'll make a standard that's more acceptable to the secular mind. The other term that we used was apostasy. And this is the turning away of a people group, Christians primarily, or an individual personally from wanting to follow God anymore. We have that as a happening. I cited one person. There are others who in their influence in the prophetic gifting of being songwriters and singers, personalities that have had fame through that, they are beginning to have, if you would, a compromising position on what we know culturally is really a seditious act against God. And that is that the institution of marriage is now accommodating through the church the homosexual agenda. God never changed his policy. That's why in any wedding you've ever seen me do, the preamble to it is making clear what marriage was purposed for and the designer of it, that the couple will stand in agreement and say, we agree. We're not confused about that. Male and female, he created them. And he created them to be uniquely wed, to be married. And so in that, we also talked about a third point that we need to be mindful of with regard to these latter days and with regard to Israel, as well as herself as a church. And that is apathy. That means you don't care. No big deal. In this case, I'll use the alternative in which what you should be is challenging a world that's rejecting Israel, but you should also be careful that you are able to challenge yourself with regard to that. Apathy, I don't care. Forget about it. You don't want to forget about what God's word says, but you do not want to attend or pay attention. You want to tell the world Forget about your ideas with regard to God. Read his word and understand him. And then the fourth, just as I think it ought to be phrased, if we had heresy and apostasy, and we have also talked with regard to what happens when apathy takes us over and we don't care, the next thing that will take you over is lethargy. You're just too tired to do anything about it. Usually when it reaches lethargy, it is a formidable exercise to get your body in the place where the body dwells, the place that we call church. And as you probably have read the stats, they're not in favor of the church meeting as once it did. I don't know why. It's a sign of the times. I suppose it's with that we can say, then I will rejoice. If I'm the last of 10, or I'm the last and I'm only one, then I'm going to rejoice that in the word and for the purposes of honoring God, I'm establishing myself in a covenant with him that until I die, 
I'm going to be in pursuit of the Lord. One thing have I desired of the Lord, and that shall I seek after, that I may dwell in the house of the Lord all the days of my life. I'd love to dwell here all the days of my life. I have less days in my life now than I did 30 years ago. And there's nothing that would say my time isn't up. I ask, Lord, I sure would love to be that crew that just gets to hold hands and we're singing and boom, we're taken up. That's what I'd like to do. And I believe that that's why the church is to be encouraged in what very well may be our season. We only have certain things that we can hedge that on, but Israel is one of them. And then also, as you see, the disposition of the church, that's one of them. Is your lamp full of oil, wicks ready to trim? Are you ready for the call of the bridegroom? That's one of those dispositional things you can see. Some are, some aren't. Who are you? Who am I? I like to believe that I'm ready. And lastly, the screams of the culture to be an acceptation of how they want to define their life and how they want to qualify my spirituality based on their carnality. It's not going to happen. doesn't mean I can't be a carnal person, but it means that I will not, I will not do so without repentance. And that's nothing more than saying, Lord, I'm not going to go that way. Lord, I did go that way but I'm with you. Forgive me. Thank you, Lord, for, in fact, doing that on the cross for me. So in Romans chapter 11 right now, continuing with this idea of why Paul has said there is much to be considerate of the Jewish people, both circumcision and the oracles of God that have been given to them and ultimately that we are the beneficiaries of holding down. I say then, has God cast away his people? Verse 1, certainly not. For I also am an Israelite of the seed of Abraham, of the tribe of Benjamin. God, verse 2, has not cast away his people whom he foreknew, or do you not know what the scripture says of Elijah? How he pleads with God against Israel, saying, Lord, they've killed your prophets and torn down your altars, and I alone am left, and they seek my life. See, he thought at his time, when he was confronting culture, and in particular, those who had invaded you know, the premises of a spiritual nation, he felt he was the only one. At times, you and I can read the headlines and we can feel like we're the only ones. Paul is saying it's not true. He had allowed, if you would, the statistics, which he would have been mostly aware of in his day, to overwhelm him in the things that he knew of God, his faithfulness. He even found himself overwhelmed. But it says this, as he says that, but what does the divine response say to him? I have reserved for myself 7,000 men who have not bowed the knee to Baal. God came back to him in the moment 
of his desperate solitude, feeling he had been abandoned. He says, I got 7,000 just like you who have not bowed at the knee. You don't see him, but I know him. And that's one of the things that you as well need to have great confidence in. We can't see everyone. Not really. We can't see the dynamis of the spirit in every church, but we have to know there are churches that have not bowed the knee, though there are churches that have bowed the knee to the cultural Baals of our day. We haven't. We may become unpopular. It's very likely that that will be, in fact, the case. Back in the 80s, 70s, a work like this, we'd be doing probably double services, triple services, not because of the person, but because of the hunger, because of the thirst, because of the fact that at one time going to church was important. People understood the significance of having your life bolstered spiritually, your confidence renewed, blessings so much more easily discerned. You were able to have a perspective in those days that would have been formidable to that generation. I'm still a part of it. But what I'm saying is these days right now are either going to bring about a revival in which there will be a surge because the spirit is going to be touching hearts and lives. They're going to be messengers that convey the need to make a decision for the Lord. And people are going to say, what do I do now? And the messenger is going to say, enter in to the house of prayer, become a part of the body, which you are by confession of faith. You see, when we look at faith, the assurance of things hoped for, the evidence of things not yet seen, we are also reminded of that passage that we can anchor the love of God and ultimately the revelation that we have of him that's motivational. By faith you have been saved, or by grace you have been saved through faith. It's not a result of works that any of you might boast. It's a free gift of God. And so when you understand that grace and the component part of that that pleases God, which is faith, it's beautiful. It is so comforting even when in where we are at, most of us are here, we are overwhelmed. We can say, forget about it. Forget about being overwhelmed with culture. Culture needs to forget about their attitude towards God and to remember, even as communion reminds us, that God has done a great work, a great work, an intensive therapeutic work on the carnal mind. What he will do to an individual, changing that person from being literally just a defiled person of the heart that has no desire for God to making them into a new man, a new creature is amazing. And it's done by the spirit of God upon the confession of the Lord in faith. And it is amazing because it is transformational. It's truly transformational. You can see its effect. Paul says that in this, 
there was a man who also, at times, as great as he was, suffered in his doubts. What's happening? All the things I believed, all the things I've done, and now I'm here all alone. We're not alone, nor was Elijah. You may say, well, that's, that's just 7,000. Well, that's more than he anticipated at that time. And that wasn't the entire nation. What it means is that among him, there were others who had just the same heart as he did for the things of God. And if it's sufficient, the Lord can take you. We're not 7,000, but he can take the under 100 or at 100 or maybe 120. And he can say, I can use you guys. This is the time. This is the season. This is where your voice will be heard. You're not alone. You're not alone. And so Paul continues to say that this is a remnant according to the election of grace, verse 6. And if by grace, then it is no longer of works. Otherwise, grace is no longer grace. But if it is of works, it is no longer grace. Otherwise, work is no longer work. And we say, how does this deal right now with the issue of both keeping our eye on Israel and also what we need to know as far as being a church, being believers that the Spirit has taken residency in and gifted. It's simply saying that this tension that we find against culture and even disputing whether or not God can use any of us. And so what is Israel if, in fact, we go back and look at one man's doubting of himself being a servant of God only to find out he's not alone. Did it make any big whopping changes in the course that Israel took? And the question is, as you study that in both First Kings and Second Kings and First Chronicles and Second Chronicles, the life of David and First and Second Samuel, you'll find that the nation was on a course of plunging really into great despair and wickedness. They never did make the improvements necessary. And they're used as an illustration because of the fact that as a peculiar people, they actually embody what you and I could be charged with as well. You guys are peculiar. You guys are stiff-necked. You guys have hard hearts. So whenever we begin to demote them, we have to say, by what right do we promote ourselves? God chose a people group that seemed to have been easily centered, uniquely in favor, and yet there was nothing that they did that deserved the favor. We only have right now cited that in two of those examples, Noah found favor in the sight of God, and he was saved ultimately when the ark parked and there was a civilization, civilization once again to be formed. It would find itself corrupt again. You see Abraham seemingly looked at from God in heaven, and there was nothing that he did to deserve the favor of God except one thing that we can conclude. He heard the voice of God and responded to God. And then you see the lineage of Abraham all of these things lead to a lineage 
which is uninterrupted as far as God's plan to bring redemption to the world through ultimately a sacrifice that he would perform himself upon his son through the agency of wicked men that all might be saved. For God indeed is sensitive. He takes no delight in the death of the ungodly because he knows what ultimately that means for them, accursed, separated from God forever in torment that never ends. That is something you do not have to fear. That's very important to know that if you have a relationship in Jesus, the worst of your torment is what's happening perhaps now in your life, but it doesn't compare to those who outside of a relationship with God have to suffer seemingly without the comfort of the Holy Spirit, without the promises of God's word. And so as Paul is citing this, and as you can continue to read through it, which is why it's important, finishing off this fig teaching, don't get boastful, don't become arrogant. Remember that what we receive here was granted to them over there. And what we have right now, we possess uniquely as what the scriptures would qualify us as the bride of Christ. The doctrine that is in here, oh, we have so much more to learn in its application in our life. The washing of the water of the word, every time it's opened, every time you're hearing it, there's so much even yet that even as hard as we may study has not yet been plumbed. It's a living book. It's a living word that never changes in its power and its authentication of the relationship that we have with God. It's why it's so important that as we meet here, we never have to be confused about what God's doing. The study in Revelation is so critically important. At one time, a teaching in Revelation would summon masses of people. It was actually something that was circumvented by much of the church, the early church, because for them it was a book that had great confusion. So what happened? All of a sudden, scholars began looking at that book, and they all of a sudden had eyes to see what was revealed in the book. And that which they did not understand, they simply trusted the Spirit of God. And the fact of the matter is, as God says, to even be hearing this book, reading this book, you will be blessed. And so it does pertain to the days in which the church in Revelation 4 is taken up and the plan of God to ultimately bring the consummation of the ages through what will be known as the wrath of God being poured out on a Christ-rejecting world. And the fact of the matter is that we understand in reading Revelation that Israel, this stiff-necked, peculiar group of people, will be protected and saved, even as now history would record it has. Since 1948, they have not been able to be displaced. You know, and I think you do know this, that Israel by land mass, square miles, 
is about the size of New Jersey. Probably New Jersey is just a bit smaller than it. About 13,000 square miles is its landmass. It's dinky compared to the Middle Eastern region and all of the enemies that will be swarming that place during those days. 13,000 square miles. They occupy basically only a tenth of what God gave them in the Abrahamic covenant. So you multiply that some 130,000 square miles and you end up with something. And this is all just, you know, it's, I'm trying to be somewhat precise, but it's probably even greater than this. But that would be like the state closest to it of Montana. If you look at Montana, it actually represents almost 10 times the area of New Jersey, which is presently what on the map you would see Israel at. And even then, it's only going to be a place where Israel indeed will welcome Messiah. But you, you see how much God has allowed that little dinky nation to be a cup of trembling because nobody can figure out how it can withstand the agencies of a world system that is aggressively opposed to it. And you should be one that when every, t every time we get a president and they start making proposals of a two-state system or changing, if you would, the um, policies that we've had towards Israel, that's nothing to be proud of. That's actually something that you go, whoa, don't do this, guys. One of the best things that we made as a footprint was to bring the embassy of the United States into Jerusalem. And you remember when that happened, it was, you're going to start World War III. Congratulations on that step of faith because World War III didn't happen. But it seems as though it's inevitable right now with all the nations that are competing right now for world dominance. And it's happening in a manner that we have not seen in a long time. The church we know, as we know with Israel, will prevail because Jesus said that the church would prevail. The gates of hell will not prevail against the church. We know that God's word to Israel will prevail. I like that. The church in Israel, they will prevail according to God's word in times even like now that are formidable. And so let's assume one other thing so that we can see a picture of actually how far this gets established with Israel and this beautiful lineage and actually something that I believe gives us an idea of what God indeed did do on Calvary. Flip with me to Genesis chapter 3 so that you can see the beginning really of all the tensions that have led us to where we're at. Genesis chapter 3, I'm just going to pick it up here. You know that Genesis chapter 2 was the beautiful alliance of a couple who were married, had fellowship with God in a perfect place. They were perfect as man and woman. They literally were given paradise to enjoy forever and the promise of being able to have that fellowship with even the propagation of a generation of children that would follow. But sin, disobedient to God, rebellious towards God, 
and in the act of basically touching and eating that which was forbidden, it plunged them into the consequence of sin, which was death appointed. But notice this. In verse 7, after this had been done, they both indulged in tasting that which was not permitted. The eyes of both of them were opened, and they knew that they were naked, and they sewed fig leaves together and made themselves coverings. So this is only a point that I'm making that suggests a picture well in advance of ultimately what God would do. First of all, it shows us that in the recognition of now being out of fellowship with God, they were consumed, literally, by what we would say is their state of perversion. It wasn't that God looked to them pervertedly at saying that their faith faltered in disobedience to God, and so they grabbed something that we see as a fig leaf. There were many trees in the garden. Why the fig leaf? Well, we really don't know. It's a broad leaf, but it's not terribly broad, and it's why they basically ended up sewing them together. It probably wouldn't have any other opportunity to have remained supple any more than any leaf. Browns out, gets coarse, tears, turns to dust. But the idea here is that they are taking upon themselves in their own means of satisfying before God a covering. God, it says, basically meets them. They heard the sound of the Lord walking in the garden in the cool of the day, and Adam and his wife hid themselves from the presence of the Lord among the trees of the garden. Then the Lord God called to Adam and said to him, Where are you? And so he said, I heard your voice in the garden, and I was afraid because I was naked and I hid myself. And then he said, Who told you that you were naked? Have you eaten from the tree of which I commanded you that you should not eat? Then the man said, The woman whom you gave to me, with me, she gave me of the tree, and I ate. And the Lord God said to the woman, What is this you have done? The woman said, The serpent deceived me, and I ate. And so the Lord God said to the serpent, and you see that as this advances, it's the explanation of what happens. Ultimately, the transgression gets cited. Ultimately, the penalty gets declared. And as it continued, we see that God ultimately would tell them exactly what was going to happen. Their fellowship would be broken. There was going to be pain and suffering in their lives that which is yet to be lived. They would live a long time, but they would also die conclusively. Adam called his wife's name Eve because she was the mother of the living, also for Adam and his wife. Notice this, verse 21. The Lord made tunics of skin and clothed them. And I stop there. What they had done in the flesh to cover up using fig leaves, if you would, the skin of the leaf to cover up their sin, God said, I'm going to need to do better than that protocol. I will give you the skin of my son. This was a preamble to ultimately a sacrificial system by which men and women and children would have to come before the Lord. And it's establishing itself right now in what God, God would do 
And very likely the suggestion here is that Israel would be that nation that also, like you and I, looking for fig leaves all the time to weave together to cover up what it is we done. God says, it's something other than that. The flesh of that fig cannot save you, even though it, in your mind, is an effort to cover up. I'm going to do it with a sacrifice. And in this case, the skin was not a fig leaf. It was through a nation that would be given the oracles of God, but it was the skin of God himself that would be the covering of both that nation and all the world's nations. It's a preamble to the faithfulness of God, securing all humanity ultimately through God himself on a given day that was prophesied at least profoundly seven years to the day that God would come as a baby. And it's very exciting when you look and see what ultimately God has done in his faithfulness. I just took you back there because it does tell you that even when it seems as though everything's out of control, you need to understand God is completely in control. And the pictures that he's given to us that both tell us who we are, what we need to do, and his faithfulness to see in the doing of it isn't changing. Every single one of us wake up on a day-to-day -day basis. What choice am I going to make? Is it for God or contrary to God? Am I going after the fig leaves or am I going after the Savior who with his skin that was flayed open, that was pierced, that he died, he did so with the words that the world needed to hear and in particular his people heard. Father, forgive them for they know not what they do. Father, forgive us when we are ignorant of what it is that you're doing in Israel. Father, forgive us when we are ignorant in what you're doing in the church and in our homes. But God is faithful.